Chapter 4. The Good Girl. My parents raised me Catholic. Like most Colombians, Mommy and Poppy had been brought up in the faith and were intent on passing the traditions to me. Sunday school and Mass every week. The Rosary, the Holy Water, the Ten Commandments, Confession... They weren't super devout themselves, but they did want to give me a solid spiritual grounding to teach me how to be honest and generous and good. I was an eager student. I didn't just learn the Catholic way. I completely embraced it. By middle school, I had taken the whole good Catholic girl thing to its highest level. To be Catholic was to live by the rules. A slew of thou shalt nots and Hail Marys. In our house, which had become increasingly tense, the guidelines gave me something to hold on to. Something to focus on. Something steady and unchanging. No matter how heated the arguments got, no matter how precarious my family's situation seemed, I could always light a candle or review the catechism. I was convinced Catholicism was the answer to every problem, the one sure way to bring good things into your life. Gabriella, Sabrina, and Dana all went to my parish, Sacred Heart, which made showing up to a parish all the sweeter. Not only did I feel closer to God, but Catholicism also gave me a sense of community, of being part of something bigger and more significant than me alone. Poppy frequently reminded me of how I should behave. Be careful how you talk to your mother, he'd tell me if I snapped at her. God is always watching you. I came to know the Heavenly Father as, yes, the great protector, but also as the ultimate judge, one I fear deeply. I envisioned him sitting up in heaven on his throne, scanning on the earth below with an all-powerful eye, like Santa Claus. He knew who, who, who'd who been naughty and who'd been nice, and he kept record of it. Anyone who consistently disobeyed his commands and refused to repent would end up in hell. Starting when I was in second grade, I became keenly aware of this. If I, say, rolled my eyes at a teacher, I'd rush home, lock the bathroom door, and cry, and then slap myself or pull my hair. It was my way of doling out punishment on myself before God could step in and do it. At age 10, I began preparing for my first Holy Communion, a huge deal among Latino Catholics. There were classes to complete, verses to memorize, prayers to recite, and I took it all on with a kind of enthusiasm that must have surprised and secretly delighted my parents. On the Sunday when I officially committed to the faith and accepted God into my life, I stood there beaming and dressed from head to toe in white before the congregation. I had been baptized and confirmed. I received the body of Christ, the bread, and the blood of Christ, the grape juice. At the time, I actually thought it was wine. I'm so drunk, I tell my friends as I stumbled back to the pew. Afterward, at home, friends and neighbors gathered for a special dinner hosted by my mother and father. People gave me gifts and flowers. From then on, it was me, God, the Virgin Mary, and St. Anthony. And as far as I could tell, I had everything to do with whether the four of us stayed tight. I prayed constantly, on my bed in the evenings. I'd pull out a small flashlight and look through my little New Testament that Mommy had brought, bought for me. After reading a few passages, I'd then squeeze my eyes real tight and ask God to keep my family safe. For some reason, probably because I'd watched one too many scary movies, I had this unreasonable fear that my parents would die. My favorite Hail Mary prayer was one I'd remember in Sunday school. Santa Maria, Madre de Dios, ruga por nuestros pecadores, ahora y en la hora de nuestra muerte. Amen. After that, I'd go on to make all my other usual requests. A little house, any house, one we could all at last call our own. Citizenship for my family, that I could one day become a star. And of course, that we'd forever stay together. 
If I sought God fervently enough, if I lived according to his principles and never strayed, he would reward my faithfulness by protecting my family. I believe that with all my heart. Every good Catholic girl does. Poppy continued paying the attorney each month, and whenever he checked in, he, re he received a fresh assurance. Things are looking good, the man told my father. We're getting closer. That was enough to keep my father's heart rate steady. But my mother was starting to get antsy. What's taking so long, she'd press. We'd been handing over money for months. Just be patient, Poppy told her. It'll happen. For a while, Mommy would chill. But then again, a couple weeks later, she'd be stressing again. She wanted to do something more. She thought we could we should put as many irons down as possible in the fire. So in spite of Poppy's pleas for her to slow down, she took a giant leap forward. Back when my parents were still living in New Jersey, Mommy had reached out to a lawyer who promised to help her with a green card. She submitted papers for the agency to file on her behalf with the federal government. But before that was complete, she halted the process upon our move to Boston. I should reopen the case, she told Poppy whenever he tried to convince her to await the outcome of the attorney's efforts. By the time you get your green card, she told him, I'll also be close to having mine. In the fall of 1997, Mommy connected with the lawyer in Boston, who reached out to the lawyer in New Jersey, who pulled her file. We still have your paperwork, the New Jersey lawyer told Mommy, but it was actually never submitted to immigration. You'll just have to give us some updates, and then we can start on your case again. When Mommy told Poppy what she'd heard, he didn't like the sound of it. That was years ago that you filed those papers, he told her. There's all whole new staff there now. How do they even know what was or what wasn't already submitted? And why don't you just sit tight until I'm done with my papers? And then we can look into it. But understandably, Mommy was tired of biding time. She was ready, she was beyond ready for our circumstances to shift. So she forged ahead. I started sixth grade. And extracurricular asides, the school was a bit of a hot ghetto mess, I'm not going to lie. Dedicated administrators worked around the clock to pull students up to academic snuff, but they were battling what must have felt like an unwinnable war because the issues that plagued our neighborhood showed up on campus. Fights broke out often. Students disrupted class by throwing paper planes and pencils at teachers. Some girls turned up pregnant. And tensions erupted between rival gang members who showed up to school with knives. It all freaked me out. Of course, plenty of kids like me wanted to excel. But how can a teacher bring out the best in students when she simply can't is trying to keep the peace. It's not that my classmates were bad children. Looking back on it, I can see that many were discouraged. They'd given up on themselves. They were caught in the cycle of poverty and low expectations. When parents have little education and struggle to keep food on the table, the American dream pr feels pretty unreachable. And let's keep it real. When you grow up in the hood, you're not exactly on the fast track to Yale. But I kept my head down and got through it. On an afternoon during my spring semester, I came home ready to hit the books. Lily, one of Mommy's youngest friends in the area, had stopped in to see her. Lily was a young, cool, single mom who'd often babysat us girls in the neighborhood. She would let us hang out with her, take us to the movies, and hold talent shows in her apartment. We looked up to her. The two were talking in the kitchen as Mommy prepared dinner for the evening. The strangest things happened yesterday, Mommy told her. What? said Lily. I heard someone knocking on our back window, she said. Who was it? I peeked through the blinds, Mommy said, but I didn't get a good look at him. Then he came around and knocked on the door. Did you open it? Of course not, she said. I just yelled out, who is it? What do you say? He goes, ma'am, I'm here from the utilities company. We're just checking things out. When I didn't respond, he went away. Did you call for someone, said Lily. That's the thing, Mommy said. I didn't, and no one called to tell me someone was stopping by. 
Lily was quiet for a moment. I'm sure it was nothing, she finally said. He was probably just checking your meters in the back of the house. Mommy nodded, and they went back to talking about how much they enjoyed the previous Sunday's mass. One morning, about three weeks later, Aya rose super early for school. I'd been working on a science project for our school fair, and because I needed to get done, get it to class in one piece, Mommy had agreed to drive me to campus. She dropped me off around 8.30 a.m., and as she did, she tried to kiss me. Mommy, not here, I snapped while pulling myself away. I'd reached the age when I didn't want to be seen smooching my mother in public. I hope it all goes well, she said. I'll be thinking of you. The project was a hit with my teachers. I tested the hypothesis that aspirin makes plants healthy and grow by growing two potted evergreens, one with aspirin water added, the other without it. The first was a clear winner. Its plentiful leaves were a deep green compared to the yellowish leaves of the other. Good job, Diane, said my science teacher. I grinned. Since science wasn't exactly my thing, any Ada girl felt like a high five straight from heaven. Wait till mom hears, I thought. She'd help me with the project. When I arrived at the front of the house, I immediately knew something was off. The door was cracked. Eric was peeking out of it. When I reached the entrance, he opened it and pulled me inside. What's going on, I said. Lily was sitting on the sofa. Her eyes were red. She and Eric glanced at each other before answering me. It's mommy, he said. He paused. What happened? I asked, my pulse quickening. Where's mommy? She's gone, he said crisply. He looked down at the floor. I gazed at him. Gone, I repeated. What do you mean, gone? I dropped my book bag at my feet. My palms trembled. So did my lips. Is she dead? I asked. No, 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 Eric said, shaking his head from side to side. She's not dead. Integration came and took her. The room became blurry. I felt lightheaded. My brother kept talking, but I couldn't comprehend all that he was saying. I was in Twilight Zone or even like that Disney World ride, the, to the Tower of Terror. Are you even listening to me, snapped Eric, when he noticed how I was off in Never Never Land? His words jolted me back to the present. Our mother is about to be, be deported, he repeated. She's been locked up. After Mommy had dropped me off at school, she'd returned to the house to get her own morning her own morning underway. She went to her cleaning job. Afterwards, she picked up some groceries. Eric's car was in the shop for repairs, so Mommy agreed to drive him to an appointment that afternoon. She stopped at the house again and picked up my brother. An hour later, just as Mommy hurried, turned back onto our block, the police pulled her over. The man who emerged was no ordinary cop. He was an immigration officer, and he was the same man Mommy had noticed creeping around our house. He opened the door and asked her to step out, and when she did, he asked her to put her hands up. We have a warrant for your arrest, ma'am, he told her as he slapped a set of handcuffs on her wrist. You have the right to remain silent. Anything you say can and will be used against you in the court of law. Eric sat stunned and shivering in the front passenger seat. The officials didn't even question him. They just took Mommy away. And a moment later, Eric got into the driver's seat and pulled the car into our driveway. He first called Poppy and told him to rush home from work. His second call was to Lily. Moments after I came in, Poppy stormed through the door. He flung down his lunchbox on the floor and looked directly at Eric and shouted, What happened? Eric gave him the blow-by-blow, blow, and as he did, I watched every bit of life drain from Poppy's cheeks. He was white by the time Eric got done speaking. If death itself had a face, it would have been my father's at the moment. He had no words. The following hours were a blur. Poppy went into his bedroom, yanked the door closed, and thought about what we were going to do. Lily got down on the floor next to me and rubbed my back, and trying to console me, but I cried even louder. It's okay, she told me. Everything will be fine. When Poppy emerged from his room a short time later, he told me something similar. 
We'll get through this, he kept saying. But his eyes and demeanor betrayed him. With every fiber in me, I knew he was as terrified as I was. Maybe even more. His conversation with Lily was proof of that. Later, in hushed tones in the kitchen, the two talked through the next best move. They thought they were whispering low enough to keep me from hearing. They were wrong. What do you think we should do? Poppy asked. Should we go to New Jersey? When what if they come back from me tonight? That question alone was enough to overtake my heart with a new wave of panic. What would happen if both my parents were taken? Lily sighed. They might return, she told him. They know where you are now, and... Poppy interrupted. But they knew where I was even before today, he told her. If they intended to arrest me, they would have done that this time. They know exactly where we live. It's no secret. Lily shook her head. I don't know, she told him. You probably shouldn't stay here. It may not be safe. I felt like I was Anne Frank, hiding from the Nazis. Next up, a nice cold attic in my very own diary to document the horror. But we did stay. My father's theory was that Mommy had put herself on the ICE's radar when she restarted her paperwork. Although the agency claimed her paperwork had never been submitted to the feds, perhaps it had been. Maybe that utilities guy had really been someone from ICE sent to stake out the place. If Poppy was correct, then Mommy had been walking around with a target on her back for weeks. And as long as we lay low, he figured they would leave the three of us alone. None of us slept a wink that night, nor the next, nor the one after that. Padre Nuestro, I whispered to God as I lay awake on my bed, please help us. I recited every single prayer and scripture I'd ever memorized. I racked my brain about whether I might have done something, anything, to bring the Lord's wrath on us. I'd had a bit of an attitude with Mommy that morning. Could that have been it? Or had I committed some other sin I hadn't repented for? All through the evening and into daybreak, I heard every single sound in the neighborhood. A barking dog, a passing car, an alarm going off in the neighbor's house upstairs. With every shadow across the walls, with every slip of a key into a deadbolt, I feared the police had returned for us. Everything okay, Diane? My teacher asked, leaning in to whisper in me. A few moments later, he'd asked to stand to the class to rise for the Pledge of Allegiance. I usually was the first on my feet. I loved the pledge, and given the fact that I'd always been the only American in my family, it had, an, oh, it had always had a special meaning for me. But on this morning, I stood, zombie-like, and mouthed the words as if my head was on another planet. The teacher had noticed. Oh, I'm fine, I said, just a little tired. I told none of my teachers that my mother had been taken. In fact, I didn't reveal it to anyone at school. Only my closest friends knew what had happened. And frankly, if I could have kept it from them, I might have. That's how mortified I was. With mommy gone, there was no one to watch me after school. This meant I went straight from campus to either Gabriella's or Sabrina's house until my father could pick me up from there. Before I would sometimes go, before I would sometimes go to my friend's house after school to do homework together. But this felt different and awkward. I just wanted to be home. I felt out of, pl- I felt out of place, girl in hiding. WTF. A day after mommy had been taken, she called. From Poppy's side of the conversation, I pieced together the details. She'd already been taken to a women's facility in New Hampshire, and within weeks she'd been deported from there. Yes, we thought about moving, Poppy told her. I was surprised to hear them talking so candidly, since Mom, Mommy was on a prison phone. But I don't think they'll return, and besides that, I don't really have the money to move right now. Right before Mommy's arrest, Poppy had made a double payment to the attorney, Toward the end of the call, Poppy handed me the phone. Your mother wants to talk to you, he said. I took the receiver. Before Mommy could say a word, I began to sob. It's okay, Diane, Mommy said. Why the heck does everyone keep telling me it's okay? 
I understood that she, my dad, and Lily were all just trying to make me feel better about the situation. But the more they tried to assure me that the world was right side up when it clearly had gone to hell, the more agitated I became. You're going to be fine, she went on. Your father's taking care of everything. I just have to go to Columbia, away to Columbia for a while. This is all going to work out. She paused and drew in a breath. Diane, she said. Yes, I said, sniffling. Why don't you come to Columbia with me? I froze. I had never even fathomed the idea of a life away from Boston, away from America, away from the only country I've ever lived in. Although I had grown up hearing plenty about my parents' homeland, it felt more like a concept than a real place. It was a world far, far away, one we couldn't visit because my parents were in limbo status. I was also really scared to leave my father and brother alone without me there to, to referee. No, mommy, I said. I was shaking. I can't go with you. I have to stay here with puppy. The line went dead silent. Take care of yourself, honey, mommy finally said. I love you. I'll see you again when I can. In the following days, as I watched my father slide from devastation into despondence, one thing became clear to me. Poppy blamed mommy for her arrest. And if I'm being honest about it, so did I. Behind his closed bedroom door, Poppy argued with my mother nightly. Why hadn't she left well enough alone? Why did she need to go sniffing around for those papers? Why hadn't she listened to him? And why did she have to go around being our neighborhood socialite, letting anyone and everyone know our business? You're too open, he told her. Just too dang friendly. Maybe it was that super paperwork that got you caught. But it also could have been someone around here who secretly wanted to take us down. Those were harsh words, especially for a woman sitting in prison. But our family was falling apart. The stakes were high and the pain was raw. The mix of panic and fury came spewing out like untreated sewage. This wasn't the time for politeness or niceties. We were in crisis mode. No way was I going with mommy, and as a week, one week stretched into three, and she kept pressuring me about that during our phone calls, I resented her for even proposing that I leave the States. Aside from loving my homeland, there was another reason I didn't want to go. I was so scared that my dad and brother might kill each other. I thought I needed to play mediator, the way I'd seen mommy do it for so long. I couldn't relocate. I needed to keep my remaining family in America intact. In the days following mommy's deportation, my greatest fear became, became, began coming true. Eric and my father fought nonstop. The arguments nearly turned violent a couple of times. No, I'd scream, wedging myself between them. Stop it! My father, who was usually the cooler head, was in no state to tolerate Eric's BS. And there was plenty of it. He'd mouth off to my father. He'd come and go see please with no regard for the rules. And when Poppy confronted him, things would get so tense, I would try to distract them by making myself look crazy and by screaming and pulling my hair, just like I did when I punched myself for being a bad girl. I didn't want them to fight or for my brother to leave the house in danger. A couple of weeks after Mommy had gone, someone broke into the house during daylight and stole our TV and stereo. I bet it was one of your punk friends of yours, my, fa my father spat at Eric. My brother denied it and slammed the door in my father's face. Poppy was so livid that, on a couple of occasions, he came close to socking Eric in the face. I'd never seen him like this, so close to the edge. In between his wars with Eric and his many hours at work, he sat hunched over the couch and stared blankly at the television. He was physically there, but emotionally wrecked. I turned inward. I just wanted to finish up the school year and keep the truth hidden from my classmates. I tried to talk to Eric a few times, but he was just overcome with grief as I was. His way of showing it was to cause more trouble around the house. My way of showing it was to pretend it didn't happen. 
For hours, I disappear into my fantasy worlds, into my television shows, into my music, into my new, my little New Testament Bible, into anything that would temporarily make me forget the sorrow that hung over my family. For that first month following my mother's departure, I bet Poppy and I didn't exchange more than 10 words. Other than the same old, you cannot tell anyone what's going on, and my answer of, I get it, Dad. We hardly spoke. Mommy called frequently from Columbia. I miss you so much, Diane, she told me over and over. You should come here. I noticed a strange optimism in her voice, one that had been absent when she'd been in prison. If you came here, she told me, we could start over. Things are a little better here now than they were before. We could get you into school. In hindsight, I now understand where mommy's hopefulness stemmed from. In her first weeks at home, she experienced a Columbia she hadn't known previously. Danger and poverty and violence were still rampant there, but she was buffered from it when she initially returned. She'd been away since the 1980s, and upon her return, she saw her homeland through a honeymoon lens. Her family, many of whom she'd been sending money to for years, gave her the royal treatment. People were throwing parties for her. She was reconnecting with old acquaintances. The love was flowing, and she was feeling nostalgic. Don't get me wrong, no one was riding around in limousines. But her family was offering her what extras they had, like the finest meal they could prepare to thank her for all those years of financial assistance. The cruelties and hardships of daily life hadn't quite set in, so it makes sense to me why now she wanted me to come there so badly. For the first time, Colombia seemed like a place where she could build a life. But the only way that it would be a happy existence is, is if I, her daughter, her only daughter, were there to share it with her. That's crystal clear from where I sit now, but back then, every time she brought it up, my neck became extremely hot. Instead of asking me to move there, I told her one evening, you need to come here. I wish I could, she told me. I would do anything to go back, but it's impossible right now. I knew that was true, but while she was setting up her new life there, I couldn't help but be pissed that I was in charge of keeping World War III from breaking out in our house. I was like, are you kidding me right now? My life sucks without you, and if I have to deal with these a-holes one more day, I'm going to explode. That didn't stop her from bringing up the idea of me going there. It got to the point that whenever she called, I told my father to pretend I was asleep. No, ma no one had prepared me for this. I'd always known there was a possibility that one or both of my parents would be taken. But, that was the but what was the contingency plan? You have to be strong, Poppy would always tell me. I got that part. But what would happen after I put off a stiff upper lip? Would child services pick me up? Would I go back to Colombia with one or both of them? There were no answers, only possible eventualities. Poppy and I still weren't talking about. I went mute. I also stopped eating much. Dad would offer me rice and beans in the evening, and I pushed aside the plate. I got this weird tie in my neck that was probably from stress. A weird tick from my, in my neck that was probably from stress. And ever-present was a thought that haunted me as I tried to get to sleep every evening. Did I do something to cause this? Did I displease you, Heavenly Father? I tried to be so obedient. I'd follow the rules. And yet God had allowed the very thing I dreaded to happen, and I didn't understand why. Mommy had been away for a little while over two months when Poppy came home with some news. Your mother's coming back, he told me. I glared at him. What? I asked. She found a way to get back into the country, he said blankly. But how? I don't know all the details, he said in a matter-of-fact way that told me there was more to the story, but that he wasn't going to share it with me. She'll be here tomorrow, he told me. I was stunned. A flood of questions filled my head. How could she have found a way back into the United States? 
Had the charges been dropped? Was the paperwork somehow sorted out? What's going on? And what isn't Puppy telling me? Puppy didn't seem thrilled, nor did I. It's not that I wasn't happy to hear Mommy was returning, but I feared that her return could put us all in danger of being arrested. I didn't question Puppy any further about it. By this point, we both recognized the don't ask, don't tell policy we'd put in place. The next evening around 7, Mommy pulled up in front of our house in a taxi cab. Poppy, who had been nervously eyeing the clock as if he was expecting her at a certain time, rushed out into the driveway to meet her. I followed. My princess, she said, dropping her suitcase to run up and hug me. Oh my goodness, it's so good to see you both. She and Poppy embraced a bit half-heartedly, as if all the previous two months' dramas stood between them. Mommy didn't look like she had just been through a horrifying ordeal. Her clothes were cute, her smile was broad, her energy seemed open. I hadn't quite known what to expect upon seeing her again. I had imagined she'd be undercover, maybe in a hat and glasses, or army fatigues, incognito. Neither Mommy nor Poppy told the specifics of how she managed to get back across the border. But I did today. To this day, I still don't know for sure. But I did know that the only that only a mother who refused to live separately from her family would take the big risk of returning. My parents immediately began making plans for a move. With mommy back, staying put was out of the question. We'd move to New Jersey. We wouldn't stay with my aunt and uncle. The authorities might find us there, but we'd find an apartment a few towns over and off the grid. That was the plan. And for a hot minute, things seemed like they were about to come together for us. Until the day that, one week after Mommy's return, she was arrested. Again. That morning, my mother had been walking a couple of our neighbor's children to school, a side job she'd done for years prior. Single mothers who needed to get to work early would bring their little ones to our place before school. Mommy would feed them breakfast and walk them to class. In this case, it was summer school, which I'd also been intending. When I came home that afternoon, Lily was in our living room again. Same spot. Same red eyes. Same look of exasperation. It happened again. We couldn't believe it. My dad had no words. One of the children mommy was walking with was Lily's son. When the ICE officer pulled up alongside her on the street and got out of the car, mommy began to cry. She knew it was coming. Ma'am, we're going to need you to come with us, the officer told her. He placed her in handcuffs as another officer gathered the children. I'm not sure how or when Lily and the other mothers received word that their children were being held at a local ICE facility, but when they did, Lily rushed to pick up her son. She then came directly back to our house, called my school, and requested that they send, home, send me home immediately. When I walked through the front door, filled with dread that the worst had indeed happened, Lily was there waiting. I could tell her by her stone face that the news was exactly as I feared. She's gone, Lily said, pulling me into her arms. Your mother's been arrested again. This time, I was too stunned even to cry. Honestly, it felt like the biggest mind F ever. Was this really happening to us? What could we have possibly done to bring this on ourselves? How could my mother not be taken not once, but twice? Following this arrest, Poppy wasn't taking any chances. We're moving, he told me. We've got to get out of here. We didn't go far because we couldn't risk going and getting a lease somewhere. So we rented the little dingy basement apartment of Liv- L- Olivia, a friend we'd known for years. Olivia was a tiny woman with a big bark, who could cut down people to shreds if the occasion warranted. She lived upstairs with her daughter and son, who were older than me, but were like my brother and sister. Her daughter was nicknamed Big D, and I was called Little D, because her names were similar. She always had the best clothes and accessories, and I would rummage through a closet and play dress up for hours. She always had my back. Seeing me as a meek child, she taught me not to take any crap from anyone. 
She also didn't take any crap from me. When I had my first cigarette with one of her friends, she slapped me across the face for doing it. I wrote her a hate letter, which I think she still has to this day and has never let me down, live it down. Big D's jerk older brother, Ant, was always teasing us. Of course, I secretly loved it because it was so much fun. Years earlier, our families had lived in the same triplex. I would escape to their apartment whenever my parents had a big blow up. I usually rubbed in tears and Aunt, Aunt would torment me, suggesting that I be dropped off at an orphanage instead. Carl, their stepdad, named Tur- nicknamed Turbon, was also a very lively character. He would say, I know how to fix this. We are going to interview Diane Guerrero. Pretending to hold a microphone in hand, he would ask what started my parents' fight. I would spill the beans down to the very last detail. Even though I was only five then, I would never pass up a good interview. They, too, were my family. That's why when my family was hit with a new crisis, we turned to them and they welcomed us in. The one bedroom that we moved into was so tiny that we had to get rid of most of our stuff and bag up the rest. The only piece of furniture we bought brought was a small love seat. Everything we didn't sell, we boxed up, including all my dolls and costumes and a lot of my clothes. Eric had chosen to move to New Jersey and try to start over there. I wasn't expecting the four seasons, but this basement was scary. The ceilings were low, dozens of boxes and storage bin lined the entrance. It smelled like mothballs, and the place was crawling with rats. Dad put my little mattress on the floor in his room next to his bed. At nights, I could hear the rats scurrying and climbing inside the walls. I slept with one eye open and sometimes saw the biggest freaking rats in the world gnawing at the crack in the ceiling light above my head. I was so scared the light would break and the rat would fall on my face. Believe it or not, that wasn't the worst. The worst was when a rat would die in the walls and the smell would permeate the entire apartment. I didn't think my dad could get any more depressed than he had been after mommy was taken the first time, but he sank even lower. For the first eight weeks, I think both of us were secretly hoping she'd magically reappear, as she had done before. But two months came and went, and summer stretched into fall. No mommy. In school, I did my best to stay focused. Not easy, given all that was happening at home. My grades slid. My math teacher called Poppy. What's happening with Diane? He asked. She doesn't seem as interested in her work anymore. I'll talk to her, Poppy promised. I'm sure she'll get back on track. Of course, he didn't dare tell the guy the reality that her family was trapped in the very definition of a living nightmare. Poppy worked even longer hours than before. He was sending my mother money in Colombia, plus supporting us. Suddenly, there was no distinction between a Monday or a Tuesday or a Friday. They all went like this. Poppy got up, left for work, dropped me off with the neighbors upstairs, who gave me breakfast and sent me off to school. I'd I'd sleepwalk my way through the day, and then return home at 2.30 and fall asleep on the neighbor's couch. Do you want to watch TV? Olivia would ask. I'd nod and she'd turn on peanuts. For whatever reason, Charlie Brown was a source of comfort. I'd sit there eating a massive number of Cheez-Its, one cracker after another, while peering at the screen. I was just passing time until Poppy came home around six. In fact, I was just passing time until God found it in his heart to lift us out of this mess. Seventh grade is when things began changing for me physically. I was developing boobs. Not the gigantic ones, mind you. More like apricots than grapefruits but they were big enough for me to start pestering my father to buy me a bra normally i never have a conversation with poppy mommy had always been the one to be sure i had clothes and undergarments i needed she'd buy me these cute cotton undies and girly dresses which explains why once she was gone i started dressing like a pre-adolescent boy sneakers t-shirts fuzzy hair 
These weren't ordinary times, so I had to get my father on the bandwagon. Papi, I said. I think he was startled that I was even speaking, given how quiet I'd been. What is it? He asked. Um, I need a bra. What? He said. I think it's time for me to get a bra, I repeated. Without looking at me, he shook his head. Honey, he told me. I don't think so. You're good. But I insisted. It was the most awkward thing in the world to be talking to my dad about a bra. But a girl has to do what a girl has to do. For a whole week, I begged him. It was the most conversing we'd done in months. Finally, just to get me off of his back, Poppy relented. He drove me to Bradley's, which was like a cheap version of Target. We headed straight to the preteen undie section. I wanted to get this over with as quickly as possible. So I grabbed the first bra I saw. That's too big for you, my father told me. It's not going to fit. Embarrassed, I slid it back on the rack and picked up another. It was a, it was pink and cotton and lace trimmed. That might work, he said. Before he could say another word that someone might overhear, I grabbed three in the various colors and marched straight to the checkout. Talk about awkward. Later on, Poppy called Mommy and told her about our adventure. Both thought it was rather funny, and in a way, I so did I. I'm so sorry I'm not there to help with this, she said to me, half laughing and half incredibly sad that she was missing my life. It's not a big deal, I told her. Whatever. It's just a bra. That was my attitude about anything that actually did bother me. I wished my mommy was there. I finally had a bra. Now I just needed my period to go with it. Mommy had actually talked to me about my period even before she was seeing the first time. Has it come yet? She just kept asking me from Columbia. The answer was always the same. No. Well, if it comes, she told me, tell your dad right away and call me. You can also talk to Olivia. It seemed every girl at school except me had gotten her period. All I could do was wait. Every morning I'd examine my underwear for any sign of red. Nothing. After a couple of months of paying close attention, I was so over it. I was like, this is never going to happen. And then one evening it did. Poppy was in the living room, glued to a soccer match, when I emerged from the bathroom with a weird look on my face. What's wrong? He asked. Um... I'm bleeding, I told him. I began to cry. He turned off the TV and stood. It's okay, Diane, he said, pulling me into his arm. It's natural. Don't cry there, Chibola. I'm here for you. Never had missed my mother more than I did in that moment. There's only one thing more awkward than buying a bra with your father, and that's buying maxi pads with him. Dad was cool about it and tried to make me feel as comfortable as possible by keeping his mouth closed. Olivia had told him what brand to get. I think my dad was as nervous as I was, and he dealt with that by stocking up big time. We left with there with every kind of maxi pad known to womankind. Panty liners, regular absorbency pa- maxi pads, a pack for heavy days. He might have even picked up some huggies. My poor father. But all good. Until, of course, I started flushing my pads down the toilet. No one had told me that I should wrap them in tissue and bag them up to dispose of them in the garbage. Furthermore, I didn't realize I should let one get full before I changed it. If I even saw the tiniest trace of blood, I'd throw it away. Poppy, who came into the bathroom after I just used it, noticed two things. First, the stockpiles of pads in the bathroom sink were already quite low. And second, he saw no sign of a pad in the trash can. Diane, can I talk to you for a second, dear? He said. Crap. I nodded and I stared at him. You need to wrap your pads and put them in the wastebasket, he informed me. Oh, and one more thing. You should wait at least a couple of hours before you grab a new one. Both of us blushed. By Christmas of my eighth grade year, I'd fully accept that mommy wasn't going to return. I'd apparently done something so egregious, so unforgivable, that no round of Hail Marys had been sufficient to block her recapture. This must be God's will. 
Poppy seemed to have accepted that as well, and he was going through the motions just soldiering through each workday. He talked to mommy once or twice a week. I talked with her even less than that. We'd both relax into the reality that life would have to move on without mommy in it. And then she came back for the second time in January 1999. Not to Boston this time, but to New Jersey. I have no idea whether she was. She told Poppy she was coming. If she did, he certainly didn't pass along the good tidings. She moved in with her sister's son, my cousin whom I love very much. The first time we went to visit her, it wasn't exactly a sweet reunion. She was obviously thrilled to be back. I can't believe I'm here with you again, she kept saying as she hugged me. But honestly, I had mixed feelings. Of course I'd miss her. I'd yearn to have her close again. But now that I had my wish, I wasn't so sure I wanted it anymore. Poppy and I had established our rhythm, and Mommy's re-entry felt like an interruption. Really, I was just scared. Scared that I would be disappointed again, and I didn't think my heart could take it. Our weekends consisted of Poppy and I driving all the way to New Jersey. Very unsettling. The visits were tense at first. Poppy and Mommy tried not to argue in front of me, but that didn't last long. I heard all the dirt. Poppy was still furious about how careless Mommy had been in requesting the paperwork and walking the kitties to school. And while he knew how deeply she missed us, he didn't approve of her methods for getting back into the country. She wanted to come back to Boston briefly, but Poppy flat out refused. If you're going to return, he told her, then we need to move again and stay out of the view. I didn't want to get in the middle of that argument. I just wanted our family to be normal. For once. Mommy eventually convinced Poppy that we should all reunite in Boston. Truth is, even amid their bickering chaos, their love for each other was still strong. He missed having her around as much as I did. So after Mommy had been back in the country for a few weeks, Poppy and I moved from the basement into a two-family house in Roxbury. It wasn't very far away, but at least we wouldn't turn up at the same address if ice turned up again. Mommy moved in with us shortly after that, and from there, things started to look up. The new place was large enough for me to have my own room. At last, I got my stuff out of all those boxes, and within days of Mommy's return, Poppy's funk began gradually lifting. There were re-entry speed bumps, of course. Mommy didn't like some of my new friends I'd made in the area and let me know it. I was like, excuse me, but you can't tell me what to do. She got that message loud and clear and backed off. It didn't take long for things to get back to normal, whatever normal in a story like mine. By February of my eighth grade year, she and Poppy had seemed more connected than ever. They argued, but with Eric gone, there was a lot less to fight about. Poppy was still feeling quite hopeful about the lawyer. He'd assured us that even with mommy's troubles, he could continue moving forward on Poppy's case. And I was loving my room. Because we were in a different house, and I hoped out of of the reach of ice, I felt safe enough to actually sleep at night. Maybe I'd done something right, something good, something pleasurable to the father above. Or he'd simply chosen to look past my faults and reunite my family despite them.